thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Find out about your rights as a voter. It starts with you, leadsa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Are you well today, Chris? I'm very well, yeah. I'm obviously watching the news of what's going on in Japan of with course. some trepidation, and mm. I have, uh, my thoughts are with them. Uh, I've been to Japan, and it's a lovely country, and uh, they're wonderful people. And um, the one thing that really strikes me is that at the moment it's freezing cold there. The, the one thing that's not coming over in the news reports is almost as it was for the World Cup in Joburg, um, coming up this time last year-ish, and it was blinking cold, and not people didn't realise quite how cold it was in the mornings. Yeah. In Japan, it is freezing at this time of year. And I mean, I, I set foot in Japan ten years ago this Christmas, because I, I got engaged there, actually. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, there's a really lovely place yeah. called the Kiyomizu Temple down in the southwest, um, near Kyoto. And uh, they have these two rocks, which are several hundred feet apart. And there's this sort of local folklore that says, if you walk with your loved one from one rock to the next, and you can do it with your eyes closed, then if you make it from one rock to the other and don't go off course, then you'll be lucky in the in the path of life, oh, yeah. married together. Uh, of course, I had one eye secretly open to make sure we made it. And, uh, and I also had a wedding ring, you know, an engagement ring in my pocket. So it worked out quite great, actually. But it is very cold at this time of year. And so I, f- I really feel for those people because they're desperately trying to, f- to clear up. And they've got no homes, no heating sources, no electricity. And it's, it's freezing. Absolutely. And even yesterday on television, they showed some rescue workers who were very determined, Chris, to keep working, even though there was snow falling uh, in some parts of Japan, and they had to be rescuing bodies and fi- uh, through that debris and the and the snow falling. It just looks absolutely desperate. And speaking, sorry, Chris, you wanted to say? No, I was going to say that. Um, but uh, but I, I think the, the really interesting thing is that there have been no riots, there's been no fighting, mm. and there's been no looting, and people have been really, really really organized and they've been extremely impeccably behaved and calm about the whole thing obviously people are worried and they're very concerned but there hasn't been a mass panic which you may have seen in many other places and i think that's also a testimony because when you when you go on any sort of japanese train or anything it's a paragon of efficiency buses leave on time to the second and they're spotlessly clean and i think this is this is being reflected in how people are reacting actually to the horrible situation in which they find themselves mm-hmm. uh, talk to me uh chris about the efforts to stave off a meltdown that could release dangerous amounts of radioactivity into the environment uh we're learning that engineers are now pumping sea water laced with something called boron i don't know if i've said that correctly i'd like to know yeah. how that works well, just to recap a little bit, so we've got these nuclear reactors which are on the coastline because the coast offers a source of cooling water normally because many of these power stations dump their excess heat into the sea. Many countries do this uh, or into rivers. And so 
when the earthquake struck, what first happened is that the reactors tried to shut themselves down because there are auto systems in place where you can control the level of activity in the reactor by putting control rods down inside the reactor. These control rods are a dense material which soak up some of the neutrons which are produced when the uranium atoms undergo fission. So if you've got a power station and you have atoms of uranium, the fuel is uranium in there, 235, this spits out a neutron, the neutron hits another uranium atom, it breaks the the nucleus into two parts and also produces more neutrons. Those neutrons then go and find other uranium atoms to hit and it breaks those apart and you get a chain reaction, which is what produces the heat but also the radioactivity. If you remove some of those neutrons from the equation, then the speed of the reaction slows down and therefore the heat production slows down and therefore the uh, amount of energy that the reactor is releasing is lower. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem that they've got is that that's all very well, but when you try and shut the reactors down with the control rods, there will still be latent sources of heat and neutrons from fission products in the reactor. So the reaction won't shut off immediately. <laughs> Excuse me. So the thing is that although you have shut down the reactor, you still have to keep it cold. Now, they thought of that because they've got these backup generator systems which can produce the electricity needed to pump water, which is the way in which you remove heat from the reactor core, just like the radi radiator system on your car removes heat from your car engine and dumps it into the car radiator. Same thing can happen in these power stations. Unfortunately, they hadn't planned for a massive tsunami, maybe 10 metres high, to wash through the plant and destroy their internal generating capacity. So that damaged the ability to pump these, co these coolants around the reactor cores, which meant the temperature in the reactor core, which is normally about two or 300 degrees, began to go up. And rather than running at two or 300 degrees, it may have reached a couple of thousand degrees. And once you get to that sort of temperature, then the fuel rods which are encased in a zerk alloy material inside the reactor the zerk alloy material is now so hot that it begins to react with water vapor and oxidize inside the reactor and that produces hydrogen gas and the pressure goes up and up and up inside the reactor and you have to let that pressure go because otherwise you will burst the reactor mm. so what they did was to vent some of the uh, high pressure gas inside the reactor but this led to an accumulation of hydrogen and oxygen air inside the reactor building which then detonated under the high temperatures and something else set it off and it blew the it blew the building to pieces and we've seen that happen two or three times in the different reactors but what remains the problem is trying to get enough cold water in there in order to slow down the reaction and mop up this latent heat and these latent neutrons so that the reaction will slowly die away. And this has been a persistent problem. Now they're trying to do it by dumping in seawater because yes. it's cold. And the boron business, when you put boric acid into a reactor, boron is very good at soaking up these stray neutrons mm. and so it should slow down the um, nuclear reaction. Once you flush the reactor with boric acid, it gets into all the nooks and crannies and should soak up all of the material. If they can't stop the reaction, there's a danger of it melting down and this is where the fuel inside the reactor physically melts mm. and it can run down to the bottom of the reactor into a sort of sump area. Depending upon the design of the reactor, it can either pool into one blob, which is very, very dangerous because then you've got all of your radioactive fuel all together 
together or reacting with itself un uncontrolled. Mm. Hopefully, though, it, it is flowed off into lots of little sumps, so you limit the contact of the fuel with itself. Um, but I just don't know what the design of those reactors in Japan is or where they are at the moment in trying to prevent this from happening. All right, you've answered my second question as well. Let's answer this one. It's an SMS from Sandra. Sandra wants to know, at what level or, or point is exposure to radiation dangerous? Well, it's worth bearing in mind that we're being basted in radiation 24-7. Um, our bodies are radioactive, the land we live on is radioactive, some bits of it are just a bit more radioactive than others. And if you live in some parts of the world where there are a lot of very old rocks, such as granite, igneous rocks, they actually produce, because they contain a bit of uranium, they produce radiation. This can produce other forms of radiation as it decays, including one form called radon gas. The radon gas can filter up through the ground and it can accumulate in people's houses and so people are breathing in this radon gas and it can be a cause of lung cancer. But in the grand scheme of things, we're continuously being exposed to radiation, so some degree of exposure is inevitable. What becomes a danger is when the levels climb to more than a certain level, and it's very hard to say exactly what that level is, but we have this sievert scale where you say um, one millisievert per hour is safe. The reactor in Japan at peak was contaminating the air with 400 millisieverts at an hour rate of, of counts, so quite 400 times background mm. level. Um, but the bottom line is that any radiation is potentially harmful, but it all comes down to the total dose that you get. And worth bearing in mind that if you have a chest X-ray, that's the equivalent of four and a half days of radiation that you'll just pick up from mm. the environment and we do that diagnostically if you have a ct scan this is a bit more ex exposure four and a half years of radiation wow. if you have a big ct scan if you eat a bag of brazil nuts that is equivalent to a chest x-ray because huh. the brazil nuts grow on soil contaminated by radioactive isotopes including uranium and so you get a little bit of radiation into you when you eat the brazil nuts equivalent to four and a half days of radiation i am gobsmacked i promise you okay let's talk about this the gene therapy for parkinson's chris yeah sorry i was just um i was just coughing and i didn't want to expose you to my <laughs> no, cough it's okay um, it's fine yeah when i was doing my phd back in the uh, late 90s, we started working on projects like this one, which has now come to fruition, which was the idea to try to put genes into the brains of people with certain degenerative brain diseases in order to help their symptoms. And what they've actually now published in the Lancet Urology, uh, Neurology, this is Peter Lewitt and his colleagues, he's at Wayne State University in America, is a trial where they have put in, using a, a virus called an adeno-associated virus, which has been modified, a gene called GAD, which stands for glutamic acid decarboxylase. And when you put that gene into a part of the brain called the subthalamic nucleus, it makes those cells make more of a brain transmitter chemical called GABA, or gamma-aminobutyric acid. And this is one of the brain's inhibitory nerve chemicals. So in other words, you put this virus into this bit of the brain, it produces this uh, gene product, which makes the cells make a substance which makes the cells much less neurologically active and we know from previous work that if you inactivate this brain region in people with parkinson's disease they have a massive improvement in their symptoms so what they're trying to do is rather than doing it artificially with say uh, a stimulator or something put the virus in and make the cells make something that makes themselves become less active they recruited quite a big group of people so there's 22 patients with parkinson's mm -hmm. disease and there were 23 control patients who didn't have the procedure done who were compared against those who did and they followed them up for six months and what they found is that half of the patients who had it done 
uh, did very, very well. Um, the average reduction in their symptoms, and there's a, a, a point scale that you can use to work out how bad someone's Parkinson's is, mm. they got eight points better on that scale compared with the control people who only improved by 4.7 points. Um, and they also re re uh, reported subjectively a lot of other Parkinson's symptomatic improvements as well during the thing. So this is really interesting. It shows for the first time we've actually got some gene therapy that appears to work and be sustained into the long term in terms of its benefits for people with Parkinson's. All right, we're taking your calls, guys, on 021-446-0567, Uh You can send your questions via SMS as well on 31702 and 31567. We look forward to your questions. Here's an SMS here, Chris, for you. Why should one not refrigerate bananas? That is Vanessa in Hout Bay. Well... Yeah, I mean, most supermarkets do actually. They keep them in long-term storage and the reason is that there's a ripening process for bananas and the ripening process is partly because of the activity of the cells in the banana and they also make a gas called ethene um, or ethylene. It's the same stuff that you turn into polyethene or polythene as it's also known. Um, bizarre to think this but bananas are a very rich source of this and they respond to this ethene signal and they ripen. Um, but the thing is, when you put them in the fridge I think the tissue can get quite badly damaged by cold. So you've got to get the temperature reduction just right. Otherwise, you start to injure the flesh of the banana and you get all these black spots all over the place. Um, I don't think there's any other real major health benefit, disbenefit reason why you can't put them in the fridge, though. I think it's okay. It'll just slow down their ripening a little bit. Um, but it may injure the flesh, and so they won't, they won't look as nice or taste as nice, potentially. Okay, Nick in Brownstone. Hi. Hi there. Hi, Mike. Can I give you my question? Yes. If you put two trays of ice into a freezer, and once it's frozen solid, you take the top one out, you give it a twist, and all your ice comes out beautifully in big pieces. The second tray underneath, you crack it, and it all splinters and breaks and doesn't come out in one piece, unless you hold it under the tap backwards underneath for a while, then it does that. Why would the top one crack open freely and the bottom one not? <laughs> oh, hello, Nick. Hi. Um... I don't know the answer to your question because I haven't seen the inside of your freezer, <laughs> but I have heard people say this. Um, it's probably a good thing that I haven't seen the inside of your freezer. It might be quite cold in there. Um, <laughs> but the, the thing is, when you're putting the ice tr cube trays in, they're obviously experiencing a slightly different environment inside the freezer because one is above the other. Therefore, the temperature to which one is exposed is not the same as the temperature to which the other is exposed. That's the first point. Second is I'm assuming that both ice cube trays are identical and they're the same structure and same volume of water and so on. So I think probably it reflects the rate at which one of them is cooled relative to the other and therefore maybe the size of the ice crystals and therefore the uh, likelihood that the ice is going to fall out easily because if you've got ice crystals which are ice cubes which are made of one nice big chunky crystal they're going to be a nice regular shape and they're not going to stick to the sides that easily whereas if you've got a crystal which is lots of little crystals which are quite jagged and stuck into the side of the container then they may not come out quite so easily um, that would be my best guess. But if anyone has a, a better answer, which they probably do, then mm. let me know. Okay, we'd love to take that call. Let's go to Mark in Plumstead, Cape Town. Hi. Hello, Chris mm. uh, and Reedy. I uh, just wanted to ask, um, would it, why aren't they with a nuclear plant in, well, various ones around the world, and especially next to the coast or at the coast, definitely next to the coast, why aren't they putting the reactors below sea level so that they can flood it in case of where all the systems break down like it does in uh, Fenishiki or whatever it's called? In Fukushima. Um, yeah, yeah, hello, Mark. Right. Well, that's a very good idea in the sense that, yes, you would have a, a ready a supply of nice cold water. Um, the problem is the safety 
because it's one thing to defend against airborne attack in the form of um, actually weathering of a building. You can see what's going on, it's easy to maintain, it's easy to, con to contain uh, a leak if there is one, if you've got it in a building that you can contain what's in the building. When you're doing battle against the sea, you've got obviously a lot more difficulties because you've got to make your building much more sturdy, you've got to make your building able to resist water degradation as well as air, and you've also got the problem of keeping an eye on it because it's much harder to inspect and repair and maintain something that's underwater. And if you've got all that material underwater, then the danger is that if there was a problem, it would hemorrhage all this radioactivity into the sea and you'd never get it back. Whereas if you've got the thing contained in a building, it's much easier to then constrain and contain where the radiation can go relatively speaking, than if it's underwater. I think that's probably going to be the, the reason why people put these things on land, because they can keep an eye on them, maintain them and contain them better. Let's go to Colleen in Scarborough, Cape Town. Hi. Hi, really. Hi, Chris. Mm. Chris, I've noticed in the news coverage of the tsunami, the, the water was pitch black. I was wondering why. Oh, hi, Colleen. I think that the reason is that many of those shots were taken well back from the coast, so that water had already passed across a lot of land area. Um, if you look up on the northeast coast of Japan, where the, the coast is closest to the epicenter where the earthquake happened, the waves that came got hundreds of metres inland in some cases, and so they would have scoured the roadsides, they would have scoured through gardens and ripped up lots of material, and so there would have been lots and lots of dirt and other debris in the water by the time it got to the places where you're seeing the pictures. When it first rolled in from the sea, uh, it was just a big wave coming in with a very long wavelength uh, and a very big height, so it would have just been a huge wall of seawater, but as soon as it got inland and started to pick up stuff, it would have got dirty. Okay, thank you very much, Colleen. That's a good observation. In fact, um, I, I saw that as well and I noted that one. Thanks for asking that question for us. Okay, we're taking your calls. 021 446 0567 0118 Your SMS is on 31702 and 31567. Let's go to, is it Yur in Cryfontaine? Have I said your name correctly? Yeah, it's Yoke. Yoke. Oh, I'm sorry, the spelling on my screen is something else. I beg your pardon. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have is something I don't understand about these explosions they've been having. What do you explain, Chris, with the build-up of the hydrogen and so on? All makes sense and it sounds very scientific. What I don't get is, don't they know that? Why do they ventilate into the building, it blows up, and then they do the same thing in the second and the third reactor? Okay. Hi, Jörg. Um Obviously, I can't criticise them because I'm not in the horrible situation that they are. Um, the, the bottom line is that I, I think that the vessel inside the building, in other words, where the radioactive sources are, the containment vessel, is built to withstand huge pressures, but it was being asked to operate at well beyond those pressures. And there's a real danger, if the pressure continues to rise, that it will breach and explode catastrophically, and this would shower a very big area in the radioactive sources, which is what happened in Chernobyl. So to try and avoid that, they're letting the gas out. The gas is going to accumulate locally because there's going to be a lot of it. Hydrogen is very, very light, so it immediately ascends in the air and will collect in any area that stops it rising. And that means often in these buildings where they're very big, tall halls, you'll get the hydrogen rising to the top of the building and accumulating there, and it will mix up with oxygen on its way up to get there, 
and then you end up with a huge amount of it. And it's very easy to make it detonate. In fact, I was looking at um, the British Oxygen Carriers, our company that deliver bottled gases and things in this country. I was looking at their guidance for working with hydrogen the other day because we were doing some uh, demonstrations using hydrogen. And all of these points are made that this gas is extremely easy to, to ignite, just putting it through pipelines. If you create any kind of shockwave in the pipeline, it can start the hydrogen burning. So I think the point is they're struggling with something which just wants to blow up. And when you've got something like that, it's really hard to make sure that the worst doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Nikki in Rondebosch, hi. Hi, hi. Um, my question is about attached and detached earlobes. The what? Um, Sorry, your line is not too good. Attached and detached earlobes. Okay. My husband and I both have attached earlobes, and my son has detached earlobes. And apparently, according to school book genetics, that is not possible. Now, I know for a fact that my husband is the only person who could possibly have fathered my son. <laughs> I don't know if Chris has any help okay. with that. Really, can, it, it was a very bad phone line. Can you indeed. just tell me that just a little synopsis she, of the question She for says me. that her, she and her husband have attached earlobes, but her son, their son has has detached earlobes and she knows for a fact that her <laughs> husband is the father of the boy but according to uh, textbooks and what uh, you know the explanations it, it is scientifically impossible for this to happen well um, when we develop uh, we are a product of the genes carried by both of our parents and you've got two copies of at least each gene um, in each of your cells one copy you inherit from your mother and one copy from your father because you have two copies of each chromosome and when the parents make their own gametes, sperms and eggs, then they will rearrange some of that genetic material from both those chromosomes, which then goes into their eggs, and half of their genetic material from each parent comes together in the fertilised egg and makes the resulting embryo. Now, the genes which are written into that embryo then tell the developing baby how it should put itself together. And it's always possible when you do these gene rearrangements that you can acquire new genetic changes or mutations and someone did a very nice study a couple of years ago where they showed that roughly about 30 to 50 new changes or mutations are handed on in each human generation from parents to offspring mm -hmm. so you should always assume that if a textbook says something can never happen you can never say never in <laughs> medicine and biology because you will always be wrong because there will always be one exception and it's pos it's possible that the earlobe thing i haven't seen the example obviously so I, I don't know the actual supposed genetics behind this but it's always possible that some new genetic arrangement has happened when the sperm and eggs were being made and this has slightly changed the way that the cells have put themselves together you've got a slightly different form of the gene that would be the, the most likely explanation here. All right, Nikki, thank you very much. Interesting question. And speaking of sperm and egg, uh, Chris, I can think of many things that turn sperm on, but you want to tell us about progesterone? Well, there's a, a really important paper, I think, in the journal Nature this week. It's by a lady who's at the University of um, California, San Francisco. Her name's Polina Lischko. There's also an, another paper by a bunch of researchers in Germany. This is Benjamin Kaup and his colleagues. And they have found how sperm actually get activated because when sperm are made they're not furiously swimming around all over the place when they actually get close to an egg that they can fertilize some important changes happen in their biology they increase or rev up their activity so they hyperactivate they start swimming furiously fast they can also sniff out where the egg is they start to swim towards eggs as though they can smell them and they also have something called an acrosome reaction which changes the physiology or the the, the chemistry of the head of the 
sperm so that it can penetrate through the outer shell of the egg in order to fertilize it. And while we knew these things happened, no one actually knew how they were happening. And what these papers in the journal Nature this week show is that actually eggs are producing, and we knew this, quite a lot of progesterone, the female hormone. And what these groups did was to study how sperms respond to that progesterone, and what they found is that it binds to some kind of clever chemical docking station on the surface of the sperm, and it directly activates a channel or an iron pore called cat spur, which lets calcium go inside the sperm and make all these changes happen. And the really interesting thing is that this is a progesterone docking station that is expressed nowhere else in the body. Only sperm have this special way of responding to progesterone. Mm. So this suggests that maybe we could use this either to help people who have infertility, but also as a clever new way of doing contraception, because you could target that receptor, because if it doesn't do its job, mm. then the sperm can't fertilize the egg. And we know this because mice, that you remove the gene for this cat spur channel, they are infertile, and people have found examples of humans who have the same uh, gene but some mutations or changes in it and as a result they can't fertilize eggs uh, they have subfertility too so it could be a really interesting way to mm. develop this or a new way to develop contraceptives in the future very interesting indeed chris as always it's a pleasure chatting to you and thank you so much for indulging us every single friday we really love it thank you Oh, I love it too. Thank you, Reedy. Take care. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. That's Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, always available as a podcast. And if you have even more curiosity about the Naked Scientists, you can uh, go to www.thenakedscientists.com. Uh, you can visit their website. And uh, somebody actually emailed me last week and said, you always say Naked Scientists. How many of them are there? There are quite a few. And uh, I've spoken to one or two of them when they were here in Grahamstown. We did a, a recorded interview. But Chris can tell us about... Uh, his colleagues next week and uh, they work together. The Naked Scientist of course is a live weekly science radio talkback show aired by the BBC and uh, your SMSs and your emails, we did our best this week we'll see what we can do and achieve next week Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.